Good morning. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving week. You had plenty of rest. Some of you still look stuck in the fog of Thanksgiving dinner. Others of you look like you were trying to recover from making Thanksgiving dinner. It's a lot of work to feed you people. But I hope you had a wonderful week and you did get rest. And if you're a guest here with us today, we are really glad to have you. And we hope you feel welcome worshiping with our church family because today marks the beginning of the Advent season. And in our Advent series this year, we're going to be focusing on the second coming of Christ. Maybe that seems a bit strange because we're so used to looking at Jesus' first coming during Advent. But historically speaking, that wasn't always the case. Historically, Advent was when the church looked forward to the second coming of Christ. Advent was a season of remembering and restoring our hope. Because the certainty of Christ's first coming allows us to look forward in hope to his second coming. And we need to. Because the second coming reminds us that the story isn't over yet. We still long for the fullness of our redemption. We long for that city whose maker and builder is God. We long for Christ to return and make all things new. It's why the cry of Advent is, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We don't want to just remember that Jesus was born into this broken world. We also need to remember that he promises that he will deliver us from this broken world. So in this Advent season, we want to reclaim the importance of the second coming. And we want to see it with fresh eyes for two reasons. The first is comfort. And I know so many of you need it. Why? Because it's the holidays. Some of you look forward to the holidays like an elbow to the face. And of course, the holidays can be such a joyful time. But let's not forget that for so many, they're not. The holidays can be dark and difficult and greeted with a deep sigh of the soul. The holidays can be that built-in reminder every year of the curse that still lies over this world. Expressed in that empty seat at the dinner table this year. The family strife and discord that gets renewed. The old grudges and relationship patterns that never seem to go away. The many meals that are eaten alone. Gifts that never come. It can be a season of loneliness and longing. And if that's you, Advent brings you a message of comfort because it reminds you of the promise that someone is coming for you. Someone is coming for you. But are you willing to have your hope restored in this season? And secondly, the second coming refocuses our attention on Jesus. And if there's anything that can make us forget about Jesus, it's Christmas. Because those Jesus is the reason for the season coffee mugs that we dust off aren't enough to combat the chaos 
of planning and cards and buying and gifting and parties and family and travel. How easy is it just to wake up some, sometime halfway through January realizing that you never actually had a meaningful experience of Jesus? And we want to remember the second coming because it reveals what we think about Jesus and the value that we place upon him. It reveals whether or not we are situated inside of Jesus' story or if we have just situated Jesus inside of ours. During this season, as a church, we need to remember that great question of Advent. Is there any room for me? Is there any room for me? In your life. And the first passage we're going to look at is from 1 Thessalonians. And I want to break it down into three parts. Part one is the past. Part two is the present. And part three is the future. I'll give you a second to process the complexity of those three points. But this passage actually deals with all three, and all three point to the same thing. They all point to Jesus. So part one, the past. Where's your hope? The Thessalonians were one of Paul's most beloved churches. If an apostle was allowed to have a favorite church, I imagine Paul's was this Thessalonian church. He sent Timothy to check in on them. And when Timothy came back, he brought back their questions. They were concerned and distressed, and they were looking for comfort. So what was their question? The question was, what about the dead? What about those who have died? Because evidently tragedy had struck this church in Thessalonica. Death had come to their door. Perhaps it was the death of a child or a beloved member of their church. Maybe it was sickness or plague. Maybe it was martyrdom and persecution. Whatever it was, they were grieving and they were hurting and they were asking, Paul, what about the dead? And they were concerned because even though they believed in the second coming, what about those who died before it happened? Did they miss the bus? Were they lost forever? Did their death mean that they had now gone to a place where they were now irretrievable? But in that question and in their concern, there was also another concern for themselves. What about us? What if we die before Christ returns? Will we be okay? You have to remember that the Bible is being written as this question is being answered. They didn't have 2,000 years of church history just to pull up some questions and pull off a few books on their bookshelf. No, Christianity was still brand new to them. And these Thessalonians were trying to understand and wrap their mind around that question of who is Jesus and what is the full scope and extent of all that he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. So what does Paul offer to this grieving church? 
He says in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He says, beloved, I want you to know the hope that is yours in your grief. I want you to know hope. Because Paul knows these Thessalonians lived inside of a world that didn't offer them any. They lived inside of a brutal Roman Empire whose philosophers and thinkers offered the darkest, most dismal view of life. Sophocles wrote, the highest desire remains never to have been brought to life. Another wrote, happy are those who saw not the sunlight after the birth pangs. And another, the gravestone is not cut by iron, it's worn away by tears. They lived inside of a world that only left them in their grief and sorrow. But Paul says, not you, Christian. So what hope does he offer them? In verse 14, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What's he doing? What's he saying to them? He's reminding them of the deepest heart of all Christian theology. Our most profound hope, it's our union with Christ our Lord, which means that your life is bound up in him. Your life is irrevocably connected to him. His life is your life. The heart of all Christian theology is this, that what's true of Jesus is true of you. His standing before God is yours. His perfection is yours. Just as he is the son of God, so too you are a child of God. The same love that the father has for him is the same love that the father has for you. Just as Christ will reign and rule over all things, so too you will rule and reign over all things with him as a co-heir. So when they ask Paul, what of the dead? He says, don't listen to the hopeless lies of the surrounding world. Remember our confession. Remember the hope of our confession. Remember Jesus and what's true of him. That just as Jesus died and rose and will come again, so too those who have died have died in him. And they will rise in him and they will come again with him. Because what's true of Jesus is true of them. Paul is telling them to hold fast to the very confession of our faith. The same confession that we say each and every week at this table, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And in that, don't you know what you're confessing? We're confessing that we will die, we will rise, and we will come again with him. Because what's true of Jesus is true of you. And Paul wants them to know that and to feel that. He wants them to know the hope that is theirs. But notice what Paul doesn't say. 
He doesn't offer hope by saying, it's okay. They're in a better place. He doesn't say, well, at least their suffering is over. He doesn't offer hope as though we're just some ethereal place. He doesn't offer hope as though it's some bumper sticker platitude. No, he says hope is a person. Our hope is Jesus. Because what is heaven without Jesus but hell? What is the point of someone's suffering being over if it doesn't lead to eternal bliss with him? For what is our only hope in life and in death? It's that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, my Lord. Do you see what Paul is doing here? Do you see how he comforts them? He doesn't say anything to try and remove their grief. He points them to hope in their grief. He points them to Jesus. He says, there's a hope that is available to you in the deepest sorrow and sadness. There's a hope that can only be found in grief. When I was in the sixth grade, I remember sitting in Mr. Holliday's science class during second period. There was a knock at the door, and there was an office worker coming to pull me out of class because I was being excused. And I was picked up by a family friend, and she drove me and my sisters an hour away to Columbia, Missouri, where we were going to see my grandmother, who was in the hospital. She only had a few hours left. And when we got there, I saw my mom. She was already there. We got an update on the situation, and he said, she said, I want you to come see your grandma. So I walked into those ICU room doors, and I walked into her room. And there I was, you know, so young, encountering death for the first time. And I saw her laying there unconscious with all the tubes tied up to her. She was a shell of the woman that I knew and the grandma that I loved. And I remember when I walked out of that hospital room, I remember opening the double doors out of the ICU to make my way back to the waiting room. And as soon as I stepped out of that room, I just broke down in tears. And I remember that same friend who drove us to the hospital. She ran up to me, and she hugged me, and she comforted me. And it was the first time I'd encountered death. And the next day, we were sitting in the waiting room, and we heard those same ICU doors burst open. And we heard the last thing you'd expect to hear in that place. We heard laughter. Hysterical laughter. So we peek around the corner to see what it was, and it was my mom, my great-aunt Jackie, and my Aunt Michelle, doubled over, cackling with laughter. Unable to control themselves kind of laughter. And we're all trying to figure out what in the world is going on. The story goes that they were all three sitting by my grandmother's bedside, and they decided to sing to her. My grandmother's favorite hymn was the old rugged cross. So they started to sing, three women in no way known for their beautiful voices. 
And about halfway through the song, my Aunt Michelle decided to take it upon herself to provide a harmony to the old rugged cross. And my Aunt Michelle has no business providing a harmony to any song whatsoever. But halfway through, when she started to provide that harmony, she also realized that she forgot the words to the song. So she just started to hum a little bit, just a little, and then that was terrible. It was so bad that they started laughing and they could not control themselves. And they were so disruptive, they were asked to leave the ICU. And that's when we found them out in the hallway, unable to stop laughing. That was my first encounter with death. But it was also my first encounter with something else. The type of hope that can only be found in sorrow. The type of hope and joy that can only be found in grief. And it's something I have seen over and over and over again. I remember standing on a sidewalk in Kolkata, laughing hysterically with Rob Shealy. I remember standing under a statue of Shiva in a marketplace in Rajamundri, crying from laughing so hard with Tim Long. I remember laughing so hard with Ricky and Vivekananda during one of the children's preschools that we were so disruptive that the moms were looking down the, down the hallway just to see who it was that was so funny. Amidst all of that grief and all of that devastation and sorrow that we encountered, it was the strangest thing because we were surprised by a hope that we never expected to experience. And Paul is telling us that there is a hope that is available to you, Christian, that can only be found in the ICUs and in all of the places where our lives touch the curse that still lies over this world. You can find it in the Kaligats and in the deep forests and the lives of the Kasa children and in all those dark corners of your life. There is a hope that can only be found in sorrow. Advent is, after all, a story that says hope has come to a world of grief. Do you know the hope that is available to you? Which brings us to part two, the present. What keeps us from experiencing this kind of hope? What keeps us from knowing this hope that is ours? because our lives become more about avoiding grief than about pursuing hope. It's when we start to believe that we can build a life for ourselves that can minimize grief and sorrow. It's when we try to customize a life for ourselves that we think will be able to keep this broken world at bay. And we don't often experience hope because we try to create a life that doesn't need it. We try to create a life that is nothing more than simply trying to make this world heaven for us. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. He says, Jesus is coming back and we do not know when. But you live in a world that will try to lull you to sleep with promises of peace and security. But stay awake because this world is going to start singing to you in your grief. Why does he say this? It's because he wants to protect them. These Thessalonians were in a vulnerable position because they were grieving. They were hurting, confronted with the sorrow of this world, and there's nothing like grief to make a search for peace and security in those moments to take it all away. We look for a way out, something to make us feel whole again, something to make us feel safe in an unsafe world and tell us that everything is going to be okay. And Paul says this because he knows how prone we are to trying to avoid grief. We avoid grief and sorrow at all costs. He knows how we try to build a life free of sorrow and sadness, and we do that when we start to believe in the world's promises that seeing peace and security can be found in this world. This will give you rest. This will keep you safe. This will get you through it. You don't need hope because this will calm your grief. This will remove your sorrow. And we fall asleep when we start to believe it. And instead of finding and pursuing hope in Christ, we turn to so many other things to deal with the grief and sadness and sorrow of this life. It's when we're confronted with the reality of grief and sorrow that we start to listen to the lullabies that this world sings to make us fall asleep, to make us avoid all of those very places where Jesus wants to meet with us. And Paul is saying, beloved, don't listen to the lies. Don't live as though this world and its promises are all that you have. Don't fall asleep by trying to make this world work for you. Do you want to experience that kind of hope? Do you want to feel it? Do you want to know it? Do you want to embrace it? Over this past year of your life, as you consider it, has it been more about avoiding grief or pursuing hope? Have you believed in the promises that your career or building that bank account or retirement portfolio will be enough to keep this broken world at bay with all of its uncertainty? Maybe overworking and starting all of those endless projects helps provide a reason to avoid the sadness and sorrow of your spouse or your children or your own. Maybe it's the promises of beautifying that home or renovating your appearance that you hope will finally bring you that peace that surpasses understanding. And in this holiday season especially, what areas of grief and sorrow will you be tempted to avoid? Well, the promises of that next glass of wine, 
those endless Hallmark specials be your hope to get you through the holidays? Or buying new things and making resolutions make you feel brand new when you feel unwanted and unloved by family? Is there any room for Jesus in all of those places where your life is touched by the curse of this world? And this is why we need to remember the second coming. Because it's a wake-up call in all of those places that we've fallen asleep. Because what we believe about the second coming in the future reveals what we believe about Jesus and his value to us here in the present. If we don't long for Jesus now, then why would we long for Jesus' return? If Jesus isn't worth our time now, then why would he be worth our eternity? If we don't long for the fullness of Jesus' presence now, then why would we long for it when we will have it in full forever? Is there any room for him? And Paul says the same thing to you as he does to this church. Don't listen to the lies. And remember that someone is coming for you. And not just in the second coming. Remember the one who's coming for you now. The one who meets you in the grief and the sorrow and the sadness. The one who will surprise you with hope. This year, the holidays can be different. And lastly is part three, the future. Do you have any idea who it really is who's coming for you? Paul gives us a glimpse of what awaits all of us. He gives us a picture to help us see into the future, to look upon the day of all days, the last day of this world and the first day of a new one. He says in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now contrary to what is often popularized, this isn't talking about a rapture where all of the Christians are taken away and everybody else stays behind. Actually, this passage talks about the complete opposite. To see that, we need to understand the word meet when it says that we will meet the Lord in the air. That word for meet is a technical term that's used to describe a very specific event. It describes when a conquering emperor would make his way towards the city. And the people would run out of the city to meet him. There would be music and celebration as the people would rush out to see a glimpse of the king and welcome him into the city. So what Paul is describing is how we will rise to meet our coming king. We will rise and meet him in the air and follow him and join him in his triumphant procession. So this isn't talking about Jesus taking us out of this world. This is talking about Jesus coming to lay claim to this world. And that moment will be announced 
with sound. To announce this coming king, Paul tells us three things will happen. It says in verse 16 that the Lord will descend with a cry of command. And the church has long held that this is the voice of the Father commanding the dead in Christ to rise. And secondly, it says there will be the voice of an archangel who will command the angels to go out and to gather God's people from every corner of this earth. And thirdly, there will be the sound of the trumpet of God to announce the arrival of the coming king. Now, some truths in Scripture you cannot apply with neat little points of application. There's some, the value of some truths that we find in Scripture, their value can only be found through a deep meditation and reflection. Their value can only be found when we allow it to shape our imaginations and to give us a sense of anticipation and longing. And this passage is one of them because do you have any idea who's coming for you? What's the loudest thing you've ever heard? What's the loudest thing you've ever heard? I have my engineering degree, which means I am a self-professed science nerd. Which means that every now and then you will be forced to nerd out with me during a sermon. And this is one of those moments. Sound is measured in what's called the decibel scale. And the decibel scale isn't a linear scale, it's logarithmic, which means that the higher you go up on the scale, the sound level goes up exponentially. And a while back, I came across an article that led me down the rabbit hole of the extraordinary, awesome power of sound. So for reference, our worship on a Sunday morning is around 90 decibels. A rock concert is around 120 decibels. And the loudest thing that I ever heard was at a Chiefs game at Arrowhead Stadium. Noise, noise level is very important to Chiefs fans. We pride ourselves on being loud as, as loud as humanly possible. For we are a strange and peculiar people. I told that to Eric Camp this week, and he's like, y'all are weird. And a few years ago, Arrowhead set the world record for the loudest outdoor stadium in the world. They set the record at 142.5 decibels. That's the equivalence of standing next to a jet engine as it's taking off. And all throughout that year, they passed out earplugs as people entered into the stadium. Now, I wasn't there when they set the record, but I've been there when it was close. And being inside that much noise is like nothing I can describe. It's so loud that even when you're screaming at the top of your lungs, you can't even hear your own voice inside your own head because the outside noise is so overwhelming. It's noise that feels inescapable. It's noise that feels like it gets inside of you. But let's go further down the rabbit hole. A sound at 170 decibels would make your vision start to blur. Your hearing would be permanently lost, and you'd struggle to even take a breath because of the compression you'd feel on your chest. 
A sound at 200 decibels is lethal to humans and would cause instant death. The Saturn V rocket that took astronauts to the moon measures around 220 decibels whenever it launches. That is sound so loud that it actually melts concrete. The Krakatoa volcano erupted at 250 decibels and it ruptured eardrums over 40 miles away. And the sound of the explosion traveled around the world four times before it dissipated. A sound at 400 decibels would produce 30 times the energy output of the sun. It would kill everything within 2 million miles and cause an explosion that would be visible from the edge of our solar system. Behold the power of sound. Now, how loud do you think it will be when the world hears a voice that can wake the dead? How loud do you think it will be when the voice of the Father commands the dead in Christ to rise? How loud will the voice of the archangel sound whenever he commands the hosts of heaven across the face of the earth? How loud do you think that trumpet will be when it announces the arrival of the one who spoke all things into being with his voice? That is a sound that will make the oceans rage and the volcanoes erupt and the earth shake and bring the cosmos to a halt. It's a sound that will shake you to your soul and rattle your bones and expose the thoughts and intentions of every heart because it's a sound that will announce that time is up. Time is up and there is a king who comes with a ledger in his hand of every wrong, of every injustice, of every unjust broken scale and the one who counts every single penny that was stolen. That sound announces the one who comes with the name of every orphan who cried for a father, every widow who cried for comfort, and every martyr who cried for justice. And that sound will announce that the time has come. And it's no wonder that Revelation says that the kings and the rulers of the earth will mourn and wail at the sound of his coming. Because the mountains will not be high enough, the ocean will not be deep enough to hide from this coming king who comes with a sword in his mouth and whose eyes are like flaming fire. It will be the most terrifying sound that announces that time is up. Repentance is no longer on the table. And the world will watch the king of glory descend upon the clouds bringing the entirety of his kingdom and power that you couldn't possibly fathom in 10 billion lifetimes. But for you, Christian, for you, that will be the sweetest sound you've ever heard. It will dissolve all your anxieties. It'll melt away all your fear. It'll be a sound that you've never heard before. Yet it'll be a sound that's so familiar to you. Because it's a sound that you heard echoed in the laughter of your children. In the encouragement of a friend. In the I love you's of your spouse. In the singing of God's people. 
and in the quietness of your convictions. It'll be the sound of the one who's coming for you. And upon hearing it, the graves of this world will burst open and the earth and the sea will give up their dead. And you will feel yourself catapulted into the sky upon the wings of an angel who's come to gather you unto God's people. And as you rise up to the clouds, all around you, everywhere you look, the skies will be filled with the saints of every age and every time and every place whose number is like the sand of the sea. And the family of God from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will finally be together in one place, in space and in time, in glorified flesh and blood. And in that moment, there will no longer be any hope. For it's no longer necessary. Because you will see Jesus Christ, your Lord, in all of his fullness. And you will take your place among the clouds and join the procession of this coming King. And we will be with the Lord forever. Don't you know who's coming for you? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.